My name is Derek, and I'm the pastor here. It's great to see you in the summer. Wow, it's uh, awesome. I can't believe it's midsummer, whatever, or mid-June, whatever. Uh, summer around here goes until October. <laughs> um, it's good to see you. As uh, Janet explained during the welcome, if you look on your bulletin, we're going through a series of sermons, sort of a box set here of messages, about four key words and they're right there on your bulletin. They're the words God, neighbor, city, and world. And uh, those words are real important to us. And so this series is really, was designed really as a kind of a, this is what we're about series. You might call it a mission series, a vision series, whatever uh, is, makes the most sense to you is fine. Uh, what I said last week, and I'll say it again and again the next week and the week after, um, we wanted to take the month of June and to, as a church community, retrace our steps all the way back to the things that matter most. And the things, that, uh, uh, the things that are most important to us as a church community, and they're behind everything that we're trying to do. They're behind everything that we're trying to become, not just as individuals, uh, you know, alone with God, a relationship with God, but as a community, as a church. Because God has a kind of a, a design plan in mind when it comes to his church. And so we just decided that uh, during the month of June, we would Again, just walk all the way back to the main reasons, the core reasons, the framework, really, of what builds a church. Not just this one, all of them. Uh, they're all pretty much the same. When I was living in uh, Henry County, which is, anybody familiar? Anyone? Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's all, let me just say where it is. It's, this is the way my wife and I would say it. If Atlanta is an island in a sea of rednecks. <laughs> Henry County is like the beach. <laughs> a lot of stuff washing up every now and then. Uh, no, it was wonderful. I was doing youth ministry down at a, a larger church there, and it was uh, a great experience. But w what we would, get the, we would get these things in the mail. I haven't gotten any here, which is great. But I would get these uh, church mailers in my mailbox all the time, these cards. And um, they would either be for new churches or a church was starting a new series or whatever, and they would mass mail the communities. Anybody ever gotten these? Some of them are creative. Some of them are really good. I kept a file of them, a running file, for uh, several years because they were both hilarious and sad and depressing all in the same, all in the same breath. But uh, most of them, and some of them would just be like these, like they would try to be really risque, you know, like you're reading this card going, what have I gotten in the mail? And then you turn it over and it's like, oh, it's a church. <laughs> it's a sex series at a church. I get it. But the other side, you're like, whoa, hide the kids. Uh, and they were all different, but the thing that was common among all of them was that um, they would all have this kind of message where it was like, this is a new kind of church. As if to say, if you're bored with the one you're at, come here because it's a new, it's new. One of them even said, this was uh, not my favorite in terms of, I agreed with it, but it was my favorite in terms of how ridiculous it was. This is not your grandma's church. <laughs> to which I was like, that's hard for me as a pastor who gets on a stage and speaks about people who lived thousands of years ago, you know. And uh, of course it's not my grandma's church, it's not your church either, it's God's long narrative of church. And um, so all, all that to say, when you start talking about what a church is supposed to be, 
Uh, it's already been set in the scriptures. We simply get in line with that. And as Janet said in the welcome, we had a quote last week, and I wished that it were my quote, but it's so true. It's theologically profound and spot on uh, that it's not, it's not that the church develops a mission, but it's that God's mission has a church, that he uses us to accomplish what he's trying to do in the world, which is to say, when you start talking about church life, like what we should do, and et cetera, it never should begin with, what do we want to do as a church? But it always should begin with, what is God wanting to do? And the church simply becomes the signature of what God is doing, that we become uh, an example, the billboard, the witness of what God is up to in the world. And so when you and I start talking about mission and what our vision might be, uh, it always begins not, again, with what we want, but what God, with what God wants. Does that make sense? And so the, all the church has to do is figure out what that is, which is quite clear in Scripture, and then we just drop ourselves into that stream that God is moving in. And last week, if, uh, if you remember, we talked about the cross, and that the cross and on the cross was God's greatest and loudest display of his mission. And it was, uh, again, the most visual uh, display of how serious God is about his mission, which is simply to renew the hearts and lives of people, to reconnect every single person to him. So much, as John 3.16 says, that he sent his son. He loved the world so much that he came here. And so what's the mission God is on? It's to reconcile and to bring back every person to him. That's his mission. That doesn't have to be written. We don't have to sit in a room and create that. We don't have to figure out what that is. That's what it is. And our job as a church is simply to lead people to the foot of the cross where the resurrected Jesus died and uh, for the sins of a broken world, announcing really, and this is the most beautiful part of scripture, announcing a new day and a new creation and a new life uh, for everyone and all and, and uh, for all people in all places at all times. So the church doesn't have to develop anything uh, like that. It's already in place. However, God gives us the freedom to work that out and how we, how we uh, live and act as a church in our city, in our context, wherever. We get to sort of be creative in that, but the mission is already set, and that is simply to lead people to the cross where God displayed all of that. So that was last week. We talked about God. If you'll look at the bulletin there, the four words there, God, neighbor, city, and world. I would like for us, if we could, sort of all skate these words together and say them out loud. I want you to say them twice, not back to back. Don't say God, God, neighbor, neighbor, city, city, world, world. Don't do that. Uh, now some of you are going to do that, I know. But we're going to run through the list twice. I want to hear it like, nice and loud and rhythmic. Are you ready? On the count of three. Here we go. One, two, and three. God, neighbor, city, world, God, neighbor, city, world. Yes, sensei. Uh, that was good. Very good. Today we're going to talk about neighbor. And so I built a little living room. You like it? This is actually my couch. We bought it at Pier 1 like 10 years ago, and it folds out into a mattress. So if you want it, let me know, because we don't have room for it in our condo. All right. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to sit here and walk through this today. I told last service, and it, uh, I've made some adjustments uh, to the message because it kind of jumps, and so I've, I've tried to make it a little bit more understandable. First service always gets the trial run, you know. USA Today, I found this um, this morning, actually, as I was just looking over the notes and grabbed the paper. It says, whose life would you save? 
And so there's five, six different options here. 84% uh, said they would save a family member. That means 16% are thinking, eh, eh, let's go, right? That's horrible. That's horrible. Uh, so are you with me? Are you ready? 74% would save a friend. Not bad. A co-worker, 61%. This is if they're dying, by the way. I don't mean like save them from debt or whatever. This is, sorry, I meant to read that. They need CPR. Would you do it? Family member, 16% said, I don't think so. Uh, a friend, 74%. Yeah, depends. Uh, which means three out of four times that you need CPR, they'll give you CPR. The fourth time you're gone. Uh, a coworker, 61%. Boss, anybody? 58%, not bad. But I don't know if that's like, maybe I'll get a promotion or whatever. But If it was a no-strings-attached CPR to the boss, it might be lower. Uh, a stranger, 45%. And 28% said they would save a cat. Which I just found hard to take. Like family, friend, coworker, boss, stranger, and something you can get for free at the shelter. 20... <laughs> I would like to see the CPR on a cat, by the way. Uh, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Um, we're going to talk about neighbor today. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, two. And you may be very, very familiar with this scripture. Uh, it may be new to you, and that's, that's fine. Uh, but I want us to walk through it and to look at some things that Jesus said here. And, I, and let me set it up this way. This passage is the super passage, the super text, the chief statements from Jesus, and really in all of scripture, about pretty much God's plan for your life. And that's a common phrase thrown around, and I'm not talking about day-to-day, -day, what am I going to do tomorrow or next week at my job or whatever kind of plan. I'm talking about the macro, sort of big picture, all-encompassing. This is what God wants for every single person in every single place and every single time in history, all people, all places, at all times. This right here is the number one, this is it. And um, so if you've ever had that question, like, what is it that God wants for my life? In a big sense, again, not tomorrow, the next day, how I'm going to handle this situation or that. This is the big picture. And those little bitty situations can be run through this big picture for sure. It's like a grid. But this is the big, big, big picture of what God wants for your life. And, my, and for all people, in all places at all times. Now, it starts... In verse 34, like this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And the Sadducees was this group of religious elites. Uh, very intelligent. Very uh, smart, obviously. Very knowledgeable of the scriptures. They were also employed by Rome. And so they had influence and power as well. But when Jesus taught them, they were sort of like, uh, I got nothing. One of them, and, uh, and then it says the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law. Let me just explain that uh, line if you're not familiar. When you see the word law in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, it's referring to a, a particular piece of Scripture. 
And it's referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sometimes called the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, or the, or the books of the law. And in those five books is the law that God gave Israel to live by. There's a lot of them, by the way, as far as the commandments. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. I thought there were just 10. 10 are really the summary of all of those. And so one of them, it says, is an expert in the law. So he's a Pharisee, but he's also perhaps a scribe. And to be an expert in the law meant that they could just rattle it off. They could just recite it. It was not uncommon for the religious elites in those days to know large sections of Scripture from memory. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they could do it all. They could memorize all of it. And they could recount it and debate it and throw it around, just like normal conversation. So the best of the best in the group steps forward, it says. And it says he tested him, Jesus, with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest guitar solo of all time? That's essentially what he's asking him. It's a hard thing to answer. It's subjective. You can feel the tension in the question. That's not the real question, by the way. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Another way of reading that in the language is, what's the heaviest commandment? What matters most to God? That's the question. So of all 600 plus commandments, what's the one we should really pay attention to? And the thing about the question is, it was a common question in the day. It wasn't uncommon. And if, in fact, the answer that Jesus gives, many, many of those people would have agreed. They would have said, yeah, that's what I thought. But the question still has a, a, a tone of tension because there's a subjective nature to the question. They're not settled on which one it is. So that's sort of the setup. Jesus is teaching. He's done very well. He's silenced a pretty intelligent group. One of the Pharisees, perhaps a scribe, an expert in the law, steps forward and says, I'll ask the main question here. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And again, you may know this, but Jesus' response was this in verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If you would, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the fifth book of the Bible. Jesus didn't just make this up on the spot and give sort of this like, uh, well, here's a good idea. Love God. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, which is the beginning of a three-part section of Scripture known as the Shema. Say the word Shema. It means listen or hear, which is how it begins. It says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So Jesus somewhat quotes that. He says, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, or with all your soul, and with all your mind. In the Mark account, Jesus adds the word strength, so he kind of combines the whole package. And so Jesus says, the first and greatest thing that God has in mind for you is that you simply love him. And to love God simply means to trust him with everything that I have. It's to give him, give back to him everything that I am. If you look back in Matthew 22, he just sort of breaks it down. Love the Lord God with all your heart, which means your passions, the things that drive you, the things that move you. Love God with those things, right? So you really, really love music. Love God with your music, etc. Love God with all your soul. The word soul there is connected to the Hebrew word for soul, which is the word nefesh, which is the breath of God, 
In the Old Testament, it talks about how in the book of Genesis where God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living being. So the breath of God is the thing that makes you who you are. It's the gift of life. And so that's a big word. That's not just like soul, like I got rhythm. This is like love God with the very thing that he gave you, which is your life, right? And it says love God with all your mind. So up here, this is probably the hardest piece, to love God with my thought life, the things that consume my thinking. And again, in the Mark account, Jesus adds the word strength. So this is the behavioral piece. So faith is not just internal, but it's external. There's a behavioral piece to it as well. So I love God with everything inside, and hopefully that affects externally how my life is lived. This is my behavior. So this is what Jesus is saying. Love God with every single piece of who you are. That makes sense. That just seems like an obvious thing. Jesus, what's the greatest thing that someone can do with their life? Well, they should love and trust God with everything that they have and everything that they are. That makes sense. So he answers that question, and certainly they say, right on, that's what I thought. But then he gives them what they weren't looking for. He says, the second, right, he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, before you run off, the second, we didn't ask for a second, Jesus. The second is like it. Ah, the second is similar. Well, is there a second greatest commandment? Jesus, yes. And it sounds like the first one. And he says this thing we've all heard a million times. Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. I won't make you turn there, but it's Leviticus 19, 18. He quotes another text from the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now the word for love here is the word agape. Say the word agape. There's four words in the Greek language for love. This one, agape, was known as the highest form of love. The highest. Because it's the kind of love that expected nothing in return. Which is sort of a paradox in the statement. Because when I think about myself, love your neighbor as yourself, that means myself. I want some things in return. I'm a selfish person. So it's also a lesson about how you view yourself. So Jesus sort of really confuses it here saying, agape, love, without condition, without strings attached, not looking for anything in return, your neighbor as yourself. This is the same way that God has loved us. John 3.16 uses the same word. For God so agape, the world, without condition, without, uh, without hope of any return, or counting on any return, not getting anything for it, but he loved the world, it says, that he sent his son here. So Jesus says, this is the same kind of love that you should have for your neighbor as yourself, he says. And neighbor in the Old Testament was specific to uh, Israel and residential or resident immigrants within the, in the nation. So you see this a lot in the Old Testament where uh, Ruth is an example. Ruth was not Jewish, but Ruth ended up in Israel and she becomes a part of them. They love her as themselves. Uh, this happens all the time in the Old Testament, but it was seen mainly in that light. It's our nation, our people, our tribes, our families, and the people that happen to make their way into our presence, right? So it's just, you could sort of say neighbor in the Old Testament was obviously your obvious neighbors, but then anyone else who entered into your life. In the New Testament, they make it very clear. It's just completely wide open. It's anyone that you do life with. Jesus even took it a step further, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, which began with someone asking the question, well, who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus tells the story of a random guy who gets beat up and you walk past him, and he says, that guy, anybody you bump into that has a need, that's your neighbor, right? So he says, love your neighbor, agape without conditions, your neighbor, those in your life, those you're doing life with, those are obvious things, as yourself, which has deep implications. It would be nice to do a whole sermon on that, but we don't have time. Um, But basically what this means is, this is your best foot forward for your neighbor. Just in the same way that you would take care of yourself, that you would love yourself, and I know there's times when we don't love ourselves, but this is in the best case scenario, that you would love them in the same same way. Does that make sense so far? So Jesus says, the first thing is that you love God. The second thing is like the first, which they weren't asking for. It's like the first, and it's that you love your neighbor as yourself. And then look at verse 40, incredible. All the law, there it is, first five books of the Bible, and the prophets. So Jesus throws in the prophets. There you go. It's another big bag of scripture. He says everything in those two components of scripture hang on these two commandments. The word there is the word suspend. They're counting on it. So it seems easy. I know we've heard this passage before, but Jesus is saying, and let me just make this very simple. Love God and love people. And in both situations, the love is selfless. Because in the love for God, it's an emptying out of everything I am back to God. In my love of neighbor, it's as myself. It's the selfless act. And everything he says in Scripture suspends from those. And I would argue that everything in life, what God is looking for in your life and my life, suspends on those two things. So, couple things about the command, and this will uh, close us down. I edited a lot from first service because, man, it was crazy. All right. Um, two things about the command. Jesus links them. The second is like the first. So for Jesus, the two go together. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. They go together. They are not to be separated Now let me make a statement about loving your neighbor without having any faith in God. You can do it. And you can do it well. Totally you can do it. I mean, there are humanitarian efforts that are just flying around the world right now that are doing doing a very good job at uh, battling injustice, serving people's needs, taking care of the sick, taking care of the poor, etc. There are all those kinds of efforts that are going on around the world that are led by, not all of them, but that are led by people with no faith at all. And you can do it. And I have friends in my own life that there's no visible or active relationship with God, but they love me very well. And they can meet my need. There are people that live in my building that I know that they don't have um, necessarily this visible, active relationship with God, but if I called on them, they would serve without question. And you have friends like that too. You may be that person, like, I'm here checking out God and figuring this out, but I'm not there yet. But at the same time, I'm a very loving person. So you can do it. You can do the second without doing the first. But for Jesus, to do the first and not do the second is intrinsically impossible. In other words, I mean, you could do it, but something is not right. To say you love God, Jesus is saying, and not to love neighbor in exactly how we've spelled it out, without condition, those in your life, as yourself. If you say you love God, but you have no love for neighbor, then 
something is something is missing if you would if you can find it first john all the way in the back chapter four very famous passage about this this is a john uh really hits it hard i read the whole thing last hour i won't do that (laughs) not the whole letter but the whole section but in verse seven of chapter four john starts off and your bible may have a heading that says god's love and ours So the two are connected in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So it's this picture of like, it's intrinsic. Like if you know and love God, then this ought to just be happening. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Very heavy statement there. Right? This is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This we talked about last week. God so loved the world that this is what he has done, right? And so he goes on and he just keeps riffing about that and it's beautiful language. But then in verse 19, it says we love because he first loved us. So our love is because of God's love. If anyone says, quote, I love God, yet hates his brother. And that's an all-encompassing term for neighbor, people in your life, and your literal brother, which some of you are feeling guilty right now. He is a liar. Now, I have friends that are far from God, and they don't know they're quoting Scripture, but they say, Christians are just liars because they don't really love like they say. They sh- oh, you're quoting scripture. Do you, do you know this? If we say, oh, I love God, I just love, I just love God. I love my church, I love my music, I love my small group. I just love God. But yet hates his brother, which is hyperbole. This is heavy language. He, she, is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen. So this is not unseen. This is people in your life. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God. It's like this. there's an emptiness. And so when Jesus says the second is like the first, and they all hinge, suspend from all of Scripture, you love God, you must love, you can love people and not love God. People will die in that narrative. But you can't say, I'm so in love with God, and yet I'm not practicing, and that's the key word here, I'm not practicing this command of love your neighbor as yourself. So for Jesus, they go together, which leads us to this. As people, and as a church, because this is sort of a church series, we must put ourselves in relationships where this command, love your neighbor as yourself, can come alive. And I hope that makes sense. Like, we got to intentionally, not accidentally, but intentionally find ways to get in relationships where this particular command can come to life, right? We say this uh, around here semi-often, but not from the stage enough, so I'll say it uh, again, or maybe for the first time for some of you. But we believe that faith, and that's both loving God and serving neighbor, 
We believe that faith is best worked out in community, always. It's never, it's never worked out best on the solo. Like the Bible has real no uh, success stories of a faith that was lived alone. In fact, um, it, it often talks about people who are living a life alone in their faith as like a pitiful situation. And so faith in the Bible is always communal. It's always neighborly. It's always in community. And so we just believe that to be true, that faith is best worked out in community. And that's both knowledge and love for God and also for neighbor. Because in community, I can ask questions. I don't understand the text. Well, somebody might have been there before, and we can learn together, right? Uh, in life, like I'm struggling with raising my eight-year-old. Well, maybe somebody in uh, my, my life and my relationships has been there before. And they just look at me and go, there's no hope. And so... Uh, <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just best worked out in community. Like, I don't want to be alone in my faith. I don't want to be alone in my faith. In Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 18, which is the story of creation and people, uh, you don't need to turn there, but God looks at Adam, who is alone, in paradise with God, unfiltered relationship with God. It's perfect spiritually. And he's living in a place that's perfect. And he looks down and in verse 18 of chapter 2, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So when we say things like that, all you need is God, that's a good thought, but it's not what God thinks. It's both. Yeah, you need me ultimately, that's why I came and died, but you also need and have been created for and are designed to live in groups so that the love of God can be lived out among you. And, you know, it's just so simple in the text in Genesis. You need a helper. He says, I'll make you a helper suitable for you. You need people in your life that support your faith, support your needs, support your struggles. And so uh, faith has worked out best in community. Love God, love neighbor. And community is simply a growing relationship with the people around me based on my growing relationship with the God above me. That's all it is. And this is what Jesus means. They're both connected. Love God and yet also at the same time let that love for God be lived out in your love for neighbor. So last week, in closing, we, um, we made a statement about our church, just the, the things that matter most to us, and we said that, um, to, to, as far as our church life goes, to see God renew the hearts of people is our passion, because that's his mission, so that's just our passion. We just want to see that, and first service, we saw three ladies, you know, just get baptized, it was just awesome, you know, just really woke up the 930 crowd, you know, and uh, that's, we, that's, a, that's a win for us, that's like, wow, we just jumped in the stream of what God is doing, and we got to be a part of that, that's our passion, but today, when it comes to uh, community and neighbor, that word neighbor, the ethos is sort of this, like to be a community of love and care is our aspiration, that's what we aspire to be as a church that is a community of love and care. And the best place, the best place to live out this command of love your neighbor as yourself is in a consistent community of people. Where you're around people long enough to where you will know their needs, you will know who they are, you will be able to sense when they need you. This is why church hopping is such an ultimately bad idea you're just consuming but you're not putting roots in 
so that you may serve and love other people. The best place to live out this command is in a consistent community with people. Turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll close with this and a story. This couch sits awfully low, by the way. Now, we're on time. Are you excited? Last service, it was like, <laughs> this is good. Uh, let me just read this, and then I want to say a couple things about it, because it's definitely a strange passage. In fact, I'm going to read it, and you're going to be like, that's not true. This is talking about the first generation church. They, in verse 42, devoted themselves to four things. Apostles' teaching, this is the stories of Jesus, you, you know, etc. To the fellowship, the word there is koinonia. It's this relational bond between people. The breaking of bread, so this has allusions to communion and just meals. And prayer. So the first church was devoted to, it was a, it was a sort of a learning community. It was a relation, relational community. Uh, a worshiping community, the breaking of bread and a praying community, very similar to what we're doing today. And then it says, everyone was filled with awe as many wonders uh, and miraculous signs were being done by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now the word for fellowship back at the top is the word koinonia. The word, uh, the word for common is the word koinos. They come from the same family. And what was common among these first Christians was Jesus. Because you'll see in the next line, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. It was very, very uncommon, if not, it never happened, that different classes would get together for worship. But in this particular church, the Jesus movement, all kinds of people were coming together for the first time. Slaves, masters, business owners, homeless, diseased, healthy, etc., it's incredible. Uh, the word Christian, by the way, appears twice in the Bible. That's it. It was first given at this church in the city of Antioch. And Antioch was this multicultural city. It was the third largest city in the world. It was sort of the, uh, the Chicago, you know, of the states. And it was like um, Antioch just had this influx of like every nationality piled into a church. And so it's believed that the city, the people of Antioch, named the church Christians. It's a play on. Only Christ is what is common among them because nothing else is common among them. So they had everything in common. It was rooted in Christ. Selling their possessions and goods, woo, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. I mean, that's just crazy. Turn over to chapter 4. Uh, last minute edition here. Verse 32, similar passage. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. You're like, how can I sign up for that group? There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses and cars and last year's Macs, they sold them. 
and they brought the money from the sales, and they just put it at the apostles' feet, it says. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, these are the two sole examples in the scriptures of the church behaving this way, because to be real honest with you, the church for the most part struggled. These passages stand out because this was really the church at her best, but maybe not, nor, not, not at her norm. I mean, all of the letters that were written to the churches in the New Testament, they're all problematic. If you got a, by the way, if you got a letter from Paul as a first century church, you messed up. You're in trouble. And if you get two letters, like first and second Corinthians, man, it's really bad, all right? It's really bad. I have friends who say in their ministries, we're just trying to be like the first church. And I say, have you read the Bible? They were completely messed up. But occasionally, Luke shows us in the book of Acts, everything was working. Right? And back in chapter 2, he says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Again, this is just a picture of like perfection. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, of course. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, who could stay away from a community like that? Right? Let me close with this story for you. Uh, there's a kid in our church. He's not here this weekend, but I called him and made sure I could tell the story. His name is Matt Miller. Anybody know Matt Miller? <laughs> More of a first service guy, but... Uh, Actually, Matt stays both hours. I mean, it's crazy. He stays and he takes notes and then he stays again. It's like, wow. I keep telling him it's going to be the same. Uh, but uh, not in the case of today. But back in January, he came to our building. And uh, we have a lot of people that come in from just the city that have needs. And, um, and we'll invite him in and listen to him and see if we can help him out in some way. Well, Matt rang the phone from the, uh, from the outside, and he walked in, and he's this, like, skinny kid with this huge, like, awesome curly hair, kind of big hair. Um, I had some examples from old TV shows, but nobody got it last, last service, but I said, like, an Arnold Horshack kind of hair. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Uh, whoo! Um, so he came in, and, like, you know, it's just normal. I mean, he just came up, and you could tell that there was, there was a need, and... He began to tell me that he was in town from Grand Rapids. Anybody from Grand Rapids, Michigan? See, we always have G-Rap people in here. Um, the, uh, he tells me that he was in town for this thing called Passion, this conference that took place downtown, this collegiate worship gathering. I'd been to a couple of them as an old man. I went, uh, snuck in, but went, been to a few of those. But it was downtown Atlanta, 25,000 students uh, were there doing uh, what they do. And he had been down here for that. But he drove his van, and he packed his van full of everything he had, and he came to the door to our church and said, I feel like God has led me to stay in this city, which we're always like, that's cool. We like kind of weird stories like that. Uh, so we bring him in, and, he, and then he says what we knew was coming, but I need a job. And we're not really a job bank, you know, I mean, I don't really, uh, I don't have a job for you. But we were listening to him, and we're like, of course you need a job because uh, you're living out of your van. But he said he found a hostel in Midtown, which I was like, where is that? And so he was staying there, cotting, you know, somewhere in that building. And, but he really felt like God wanted him here, but he had some needs, right? 
And so we invited him in and we talked to him. And at the time, like the Census Bureau, which I know most of you didn't fill out, thank you very much, was uh, in our building doing job training for people working for the census. And um, so we were able to give him something for that. I don't know if he ever did it, but it was like, here's a temporary gig uh, to make some money. And then we took his information and uh, he said, this is, this is sort of the tip-off point. Uh, he said to us, this is how I knew that he was not looking for us. He was looking for another church nearby. He said, hey, thanks, man. I've, I've heard so many good things about your church in Michigan. I was like, you have not heard anything about, <laughs> about this place, right? There ain't no way. And, uh, but, you know, we just let it go. Oh, cool. That's good. It's good to know we're hot up there. Uh, so if you're new with us, we're huge in Michigan, all right? Uh, sort of like David Hasselhoff is massive in Germany, but uh, <laughs> see, this is why I have notes, you know. Uh, but then he said, I'll be back on Sunday. And he left, and I was like, he ain't coming back on Sunday. Ain't no way. A, because we're not the place he was looking for. B, they never come back. And so Sunday rolls around, he walked in. And I was like, right on, he came back, wow. And so he came in and stayed for worship. And after worship, story gets really cool from here. After worship, he connected with, um, eventually, Ian and Jenny Reeves, who lead one of our small groups uh, here in the city. And they invited them to small group, you know, like you, like you should do. And he says, okay, cool, and he gets the address and he ends up there that night now what you need to know is later on that night i think it was the first session that he sort of admitted that we were the wrong place he was looking for which is kind of funny and um but nevertheless he went to their small group and um and while he was at small group and i just when i called him i said just tell me what happened because i'm not in that group but i did hear about it um he walked in our building with needs we did what we could at the time he came back he met two people that lead a small group they invited him over checkbox for the win column there and this is what he said whatever I needed they the small group worked it out they don't know this guy right they worked it out he said I, I didn't have a job so small group that night was hey let's find Matt a job so they pop open the computer they're looking for openings Trader Joe's etc cetera, etc cetera, and they get him a job and they also knew that all my stuff was in my van which had a busted out window which we eventually replaced for him and I, need, I had no place to store it. And so they offered some of their storage space to me, which we know is a premium in, in the city. And he's an artist. He was here. like He's like, God's leading me to Atlanta. I want to stay. And I eventually want to get into SCAD down here. Well, Ian is a SCAD grad. So this is a really cool story. I'm not even making this up. And his laptop had been stolen. His portfolio was all messed up. And Ian says, oh, I can help you put that back together like that. Well, I'll help you out with that. We'll get you going. And then this is what he said to me on the phone. He said, what I got the first time I came to your church was community, period. What I got when I walked in was community. Now I'm thinking after the small group story, did they do the questions from the sermon? Did they go through the lesson? No. Who, who cares? It's like at that point you're like, oh, you have needs? Awesome. What are your needs? I need these notes, by the way. <laughs> Dramatic part of the sermon. 
amiss. Uh, but here's, here was an opportunity, and I'm not saying, and you're, if you're in a small group, you probably have a similar story. I know our group has similar stories. Uh, and it's not always perfect, for sure, because it's people. We're not, I mean, things break down. But here, here was a small group that, in the moment, whether they knew it or not, they were loving God through loving neighbor, right? As themselves, doing everything that they would want done for them. That's it. And we want to be a community, a church, where that kind of love and care for neighbor is happening. I mean, is there an amen for that? I mean, that's it. That whoever walks in here, and that's why you have to stick around. I mean, when I'm on the phone with people, they call us and they need their utility bill paid, and I speak with them, and I always ask them, like, do you have a church home? No. You should. Because if you stick around long enough, healing takes place. You know, not all the time, because you've got to want that. But healing can happen. And people can care for you. We'll help you, but what you really need is a community. And we'll just leave it at that. I'm going to pray, and... Um, We'll sing one song to close this out. And don't leave when you're done. I'll come up and dismiss. So let's all stand together and uh, we'll pray. Father, thank you for um, uh, the people in our lives that serve us, that meet our needs. Um, and when they do that, they're just living out um, just the heart of what you want for every person. Not just that we love you, but that we, we figure out ways to love neighbor. And that just starts with being in community with people long enough to where those needs come up, spiritual, physical, relational, etc. So God, we ask for the strength to do that. We ask for the courage to connect with people. We ask for um, just opportunities that our eyes can see and that we can feel. Um, in front of us that we just know we can step in and, and love our neighbors ourselves and uh, help us to be a church a community of people that that kind of love and care is happening and just it's alive and um, and we just thank you be because of your son and his death on the cross and his resurrection that we have this new life and this new way and this new creation that we're living in and because of that we love and love and love in such a way that just draws people to you. And it's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's sing together.